when people talk about boats and ships, they always just talk about generally just how unsinkable uh, the boats are. You know, the, the Titanic was an unsinkable ship. Well, obviously, we know how that worked out. Um, these uh, the boats that we're talking about today also fall into that category of totally sinkable. It's our weird world. Our weird world. Welcome to Our Weird World. I'm your host, John Henson. And today, a little bit of a different episode today. Uh, Rather than talk about people or, you know, uh, things that really just where the people are the main character, we're actually talking about ships. Um, And three ships, specifically the USS William D. Porter, the SS Grand Camp, and the SS Torrey Canyon. Um, They were just, well, you'll see. Uh, It's, these are some strange stories. Let's get into it. Story time. The USS William D. Porter was a Fletcher class destroyer in the United States Navy which is basically just a fancy way of saying once upon a time there was a battleship. Uh, The William D. Porter was commissioned on July 6, 1943 and was sent out on its first test run. Uh, From there, it went for final preparations in Norfolk, Virginia, where it was assigned its first mission. And what a mission it was. Uh, Since it was the middle of World War II, there were a lot of undisclosed meetings with allied leaders that needed to be, you know, that needed to take place. Uh, The Porter was tasked with escorting the USS Iowa, carrying Franklin, uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, to the Middle East to hold a secret meeting with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Unlike other ships, the Porter was filled with just the dumbest people in the military. Like usually, especially if it involves the president, you put your best guys on the boats to escort him. Um, Whoever filled out the roster for the Porter did not get that memo. Um, As the ship departed Norfolk, someone forgot to raise the anchor all the way up. And so the anchor, which was dangling off the side of the boat like a wrecking ball, tore the railing and lifeboat mounts off of another boat that was docked beside it. Uh, The captain looked at the damage, pretended like nothing happened, and just kept on sailing. Uh, The porter eventually caught up with the Iowa and the rest of the convoy the next day. Uh, Since the convoy was traveling through U-boat infested waters, the group performed regular training exercises and maneuvers to make sure that the president didn't get assassinated in the middle of the ocean. Um, One such exercise was to drop depth charges, which are giant bombs that sink into the ocean before exploding near a submarine. When it came time for the porter to perform this training maneuver, uh, the crew on the boat actually forgot to disarm the real depth charge and replace it with a dummy. Uh, Even worse, the live depth charge simply just fell off the deck. They didn't even purposely, even albeit absentmindedly, drop it. The bomb just rolled off the deck. Um, Of course, that bomb then exploded dangerously close to President Roosevelt. Uh, The other ships, not realizing what had just happened, then began making evasive maneuvers because they thought a German U-boat was firing torpedoes in their direction. Uh, Within minutes, though, the porter, you know, was like, hey, guys, nope, sorry, that was us, our bad, you know, and and everything just kind of resolved itself. Um, Sometime later, a giant rogue wave hit the porter. Uh, You know, the rogue waves are just these giant waves that just come up out of nowhere in the ocean in relatively calm seas, more than likely, or more often than not. You know, some can also spring up during, you know, hurricanes and violent storms. But this one just came out of nowhere. 
one sailor was swept overboard and was never seen again. Life rafts and safety railing were ripped off the deck. Water flooded one of the boiler rooms, knocking out power to the ship. Uh, it was just a, just a gigantic disaster. Um, after the crew had restored power to the ship, uh, the Porter participated in an anti-aircraft training mission with the Iowa. So where, uh, and in this mission, several balloons were released into the air and then shot down by gunners on board each ship. Um, surprisingly, that went without any problem. But the next phase of the mission involves simulating an incoming torpedo. Uh, the next phase of the mission involved simulating an incoming torpedo and then letting the Iowa practice its maneuvers. Well, okay, you probably know what's about to happen next. The Porter had one simple job: to simulate a fake torpedo launch. All they had to do was go down the checklist, yell fire, and then fake push the button. Shockingly, they performed the drill correctly for torpedo mount number one, but not for mount number two. Um, For whatever reason, when the commander yelled fire, the idiot at the desk actually pushed the button. And I mean, look, you got to imagine like everyone's stomachs just dropping to the floor when they hear that swoosh from the mount below them, because that was definitely not supposed to happen. Um, With an actual live torpedo screaming straight for the president on the USS Iowa, uh, the Porter needed to warn the Iowa that an actual torpedo was heading straight for, but part of the drill was to observe radio silence. And rather than break command and save the president, the porter just resorted to lighting signals like it was 1492. They flickered their signal lamps, which, of course, was the wrong signal. And the Iowa, seeing this, started to wonder why the porter was indicating they were going in reverse. Because that's the signal that they sent out, rather than, hey, you're about to die. Whatever that signal looks like. Um... With time running out, the porter eventually then broke command and frantically radioed to the Iowa that they were about to be blown out of the ocean. Uh, The Iowa then veered as hard as it could to the right as President Roosevelt actually asked to be rolled out to the side of the ship so he could watch his own impending death. Like, President Roosevelt at this point knew a torpedo was coming and he asked to be rolled out because he was in a wheelchair at this point. I'm not being mean. Um, He asked to be rolled out to the deck to just watch the torpedo come and, like, kill him. Um, just the balls on that guy, by the way. Um, obviously though, the torpedo ended up missing the Iowa. It exploded roughly 3000 yards away. Um, at this point though, the Iowa, the people on the Iowa decided to keep an eye on the, on the Porter and they actually pointed all of its guns at the Porter just in case, uh, someone on the Porter was on an assassination mission being carried out by the worst assassins in history. Um, Also, instead of waiting to see what dumb thing the porter was going to do next, the ship was ordered to leave the convoy and sail to Bermuda. Uh, Upon arriving on the island, the entire crew was arrested by the Marines. And after extensive questioning, uh, and, you know, I don't know, maybe they saged it or something, I don't know. But the porter then returned to Norfolk Norfolk, and was prepared for transfer over to the Pacific Ocean. Um, At this point in the war, the United States needed all of their ships to be doing something. Um, They obviously couldn't trust the porter to be anywhere important, so the ship was sent to the Aleutian Islands off the coast of Alaska in January of 1944, but it didn't matter. Like, the porter was going to just screw everything up. 
Um, one of the, on one of the first nights after the porter's arrival, one of the sailors drunkenly boarded the ship and started playing with the ship's guns. Uh, that sailor then accidentally fired a shell, which unsurprisingly landed in the base commander's front yard while he and several other officers and their families were having a party. Uh, the blast destroyed the commander's flower garden, but otherwise left the house unharmed. I, it was a weak missile, I guess. Uh, from there, the porter was then sent to the front lines of the Pacific campaign, likely with the hopes that it would just get sunk by the Japanese. Um, it was first sent to the Philippines, but it was actually late for its assignment and missed the invasion of Leyte, L-E-Y-T-E. I didn't bother to do a pronunciation on that. Lady, sure, whatever. Um, for the next few months, the porter conducted support missions before being thrown into the assault on Okinawa. Uh, before the battle started, or when the battle started, the porter started firing at the USS Lucy, an almost identical American ship to the port. Like, literally, it's just like, Hey, that ship looks like us. Clearly, it's the enemy. Let's fire and blow it up. What? Like, no. Um, after that, the porter was quickly reassigned to a position on the perimeter where they had a lower likelihood of accidentally killing their own men. And for a while here, the porter actually did a good job of providing anti-aircraft and anti-submarine support. Uh, shockingly, they even shot down five Japanese planes all by themselves. It's like they're turning it around. It's actually doing what it's supposed to do now. Um, then on the morning of June 10th, 1945, a kamikaze bomber appeared from the sky above them. Uh, the Porter made an evasive maneuver and the plane dropped into the ocean safely away from the ship. And for a moment, the crew on the Porter thought they had, they were safe and that they had dodged a bullet. Um, However, the crew failed to realize that the plane had continued its trajectory beneath the water because, you know, when you hit the water, if you like, if you dive, like you still keep going like you don't just stop and splatter everywhere um and the plane when it hit the water actually passed underneath the ship and right when it was right directly underneath the porter it exploded um the blast from the plane was so violent that the porter actually jumped out of the water for a little bit um it's unfortunate but for the next three hours, the crew tried everything it could do they could do to extinguish the flames and repair the damage um Eventually, the call came to abandon the ship, and in 12 minutes, the porter sank beneath the waves in the most fitting way, accidentally by a plane that had already crashed. Um, so, uh, I don't know how many people died in that accident. I, I forgot to look that up, but it really is not important to the overall absurdity of that story. Um, Next story here is uh, about the SS Grand Camp. So on April 16th, 1947, uh, the Grand Camp was docked in Texas City, Texas, uh, alongside the SS High Flyer as they both waited for their cargo before sailing off to Europe. Uh, the Grand Camp was a 437-foot-long cargo ship that had recently been reactivated after spending time as a reserve ship. Uh, the primary cargo for the Grand Camp was ammonium nitrate, which was to be used primarily as fertilizer, but could also be used as an explosive, um, you know, because we only grow our vegetables with the best chemicals, all right? Only the most explosive chemicals then go in our food. Um, at 8 a.m. on April 16th, smoke began rising from the Grand Camp's cargo hold. You can already see where this is going. Uh, the captain of the ship ordered steam to be piped into the cargo area to extinguish any fire without damaging the rest of the cargo. Um, the problem, though, with steam is that ammonium nitrate produces its own oxygen, which would have which would have canceled out any sort of extinguishing power the steam had. Even more, the steam converted much of the ammonium nitrate into nitrous oxide, which then increased the pressure and heat within the cargo hold. Science. Um, 
After about an hour, a large crowd had gathered along the shore to watch this this yellow-orange smoke billow from the hatches on the Grand Camp, which had been blown open by the building pressure inside the cargo hold. Um, Then the water actually around the Grand Camp began to boil, and waves that were lapping against the ship's hull were immediately vaporized into steam. Like, it's hot. Um... The deck then began bulging as the pressure continued to build and, you know, the crowd, you know, figuring they were a safe distance away, continued watching, you know, waiting for an explosion. And at 912, the Grand Camp exploded. And that's really putting it lightly. Um, within seconds, nearly a thousand buildings in Texas City were leveled and several refineries and chemical plants along the waterfront burst into flames. Um, the ship's anchor actually landed over a mile away and created a three foot crater. Um, a hundred miles away, you know, where the buoys are set up in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, buoys were measuring 15 foot waves from the explosion. Uh, to make things worse, flaming bales of twine that were also being stored on the ship started falling from the sky and setting fire to other parts of the city. Uh, two sightseeing planes had their wings literally ripped off while they were in the sky. I don't know if they ended up crashing and, you know, blowing up or if they were able to land safely. I didn't, you know, see that in the notes um nearly six thousand tons of steel were flung into the air at supersonic speed and then came crashing back to earth um you know causing even more damage every crew member and all but one member of the 28 man texas city volunteer fire department was killed immediately because they were all so close to the grand camp trying to put out the fire uh hundreds more watching along the shore died as well but things that wasn't even the end of the explosion Um, that first explosion ignited the ammonium nitrate in the adjacent SS high flyer. Uh, and despite attempts from additional responding firefighters from several other Texas towns, that ship exploded 15 hours later with its propeller getting launched high into the air and landing a mile inland. Um, that explosion then destroyed another ship in the Harbor and killed two more people. Um, this entire disaster is actually considered the worst industrial accident in United States history, uh, and in all killed at least 581 people. Um, and get this, at least 113 of those were immediately vaporized in the first explosion, like literally nothing left remaining of them. Um, over 5,000 more people were injured and the explosions left 2000 people homeless after several neighborhoods in Texas city were leveled. Um, so yeah, just crazy, like how easily stuff can go bad, you know, with all the chemicals and stuff. Um, anyway, the, the last story here is of the SS Torrey Canyon, which was a 974 foot long, 125 foot wide oil tanker with enough capacity to hold 120,000 tons of crude oil. Uh, at the time, the Torrey Canyon was the world's first super tanker. So it was just those gigantic cargo ships that you see coming in if you like have ever been to like Savannah or Wilmington or um, you know any kind of port city. Um, the, the Torrey Canyon was constructed by the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Duck Company in Virginia in 1959. Um, it initially only had enough capacity to hold 60,000 tons, but that capacity was doubled when the ship was taken to Japan. And I guess the J- Japanese people worked on it and made it even better. Uh, on February 19th, 1967, the Torrey Canyon left the Kuwait National Petroleum Company in Alamadi, Kuwait with it full load. Um, nearly a month later, the ship arrived in the Canary Islands for a brief stop before continuing to Milford Haven Harbor in Wales. 
Captain Pastengo Rigatti, who did nothing but further the stereotype that Italians are pretty bad with, you know, directing large ships. If you remember the cruise ship that flipped over um, a few years ago, uh, he decided to take a shortcut through the Isles of Scilly, uh, which is a collection of small islands off Britain's southwestern tip. Um, however, um, to compound the problem, the ship didn't actually have a scheduled route and the captain stopped paying attention. And on March 18th, the Tory Canyon sailed through the Isles of Scilly. And because these were pretty populated waters, there were several other vessels in the area. And before long, the ship found itself on a collision course with a fishing boat. And so Captain Rigatti, in an attempt to maneuver out of the way, couldn't figure out if the ship was either in manual or automatic steering mode, which, you know, is probably a skill every ship captain should possess, but he didn't apparently. And by the time anyone was able to figure it out, the ship actually struck an underwater rock on Seven Stones Reef. And as oil tankers tend to do when they run aground on a rock, the ship began leaking all of its oil cargo. And in 12 hours, 31 million gallons of oil had created an eight mile long slick in the ocean. Uh, a rescue team quickly rushed in to move the ship, but the uh, but the Torrey Canyon actually began breaking apart. So rather than focus on saving the ship, the entire operation turned to containing the oil spill, which by now had turned to a 20-mile-long slick. Uh, the Royal Navy dropped massive amounts of detergent to disperse the oil, but that didn't help, mainly because the chemicals they were using were poorly tested cleaning solutions that were primarily meant to clean light amounts of grime in engine rooms, not gigantic, you know piles of oil in the in the ocean. Uh, meanwhile, back on the British mainland, Prime Minister Harold Wilson held an emergency meeting with his cabinet to kind of go over their options, of which there were very few. Um, the oil slick, uh, in the end, sorry, in the end, Wilson decided that the most logical course of action was to set fire to the ship and then the oil slick in hopes that the whole thing would just burn itself off. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, a Royal Navy team sailed out to the oil slick, which had grown to over a hundred miles long at this point, And they dropped a few lit matches because, you know, that would be the most logical thing to do. But you know what? That's actually not what they did because why would British people do the most logical thing? Instead, uh, the Royal Air Force sent out jets and dropped 42 napalm bombs on the sinking ship and the oil slick. Um, the problem with doing that, though, was that nothing caught fire, mainly because only a quarter of the bombs actually hit their intended target. Uh, the Royal Air Force then dropped bombs full of jet fuel on the wreckage, and that also didn't work. Finally, they figured out that liquefied petroleum jelly would ignite, and the wreckage was then bombed continuously for the next day and a half before it finally sank. Uh, meanwhile, the oil slick finally reached the British shoreline and local residents who decided that the British government was too inept to handle the problem began taking matters into, the own hand, into their own hands and took all of the oil they could collect and started dumping it into a nearby quarry that just so happened to be a former German armament dump where the Germans had occupied, you know, from when the Germans had occupied the area during World War II. So literally they're just taking oil and throwing it on old, you know, German weapons. Um, in all, 120 miles of British coastline was bathed in oil, along with another 50 miles of French beach. Uh, the slick covered as many as 270 square miles at its peak. Uh, an estimated 15,000 birds were killed, along with countless numbers of other marine life. Uh, and in the resulting lawsuit with BP, Britain and France split a $7.2 million reward. And that takes us to the end of today's stories. Oh
Oh, all right. Well, there you go. Some stories about some boats that sank and had some questionable decisions made one way or another by the people who were in charge of them. Uh, so let's uh, let's see what we learned today from all of this. What did we learn? Number one, the USS William D. Porter tried on multiple occasions to accidentally assassinate President Roosevelt, who just in uh, being the coolest dude ever actually wanted to watch his own impending death as a tornado was or a torpedo was approaching them. It's just insane to me. Uh, Number two, uh, if you're ever around ammonium nitrate and it starts smoking, get as far away as you can because it is going to destroy everything around you if it explodes. Uh, Number three, you can't bomb the ocean because it just, it, it doesn't work. Like, who, I don't know who thought bombing the ocean was a great idea, but the British, man. Like, where would they be without us? Next week on Our Weird World, we are celebrating uh, Pearl Harbor Day. Well, I don't know. If we're cel- we're not celebrating it. We're we're observing it uh, with a special episode, uh, with some stories from the lesser known side of World War II. Um, so we're gonna look at Operation Pastorius, the Battle of Los Angeles, the Chichijima incident, and the USS Indianapolis. Uh, it's not gonna be uh, as lighthearted of an episode. I can promise you that. Um, it's uh yeah it's just the more you look at world war ii just the crazier some of the stories that occurred uh come out of it so thank you all for listening again tell all your friends like let's let's get some more listeners this would be great if more than just the same five of you listened uh and remember keep it weird 